We can't impose our will on a system. We can listen to what the system tells us and discover how its properties and our values can work together to bring forth something much better than could ever be produced by our will alone. Donella Meadows in Dancing with Systems. Welcome to Ecosystems for Change, where we co-author the playbook on transforming communities by amplifying the impact of changemakers around us. Whether you are an entrepreneur or otherwise changemaker yourself, a citizen who loves their community with a passion and wants to see it thrive, whether you are a mentor, investor, support organization, advisor, philanthropic funder, economic developer, or policymaker, Learn the practical tools and proven tactics of ecosystem builders from all around the world to better support the dreamers, doers, tinkerers, and makers in your community by taking a systems approach to social change. I'm your host, Annika Horn. Here we are at the end of another season, friends, and I'm happy to report it's all not nearly as daunting as I thought it was going to be. When we set out on this season, it was all about the great unknown of complex adaptive systems. Scary, right? I'll admit, I was a little unsure myself whether we would be able to make systems thinking a little less intimidating and ultimately helpful to how we foster, build, and nourish ecosystems for change in our communities. Now that sentence alone was a mouthful. I hope that after hearing from our seven guests, things are a little less unknown. So let's break it down and see what we can take away from this season. First off, I learned that thinking and acting in complex adaptive systems is actually pretty natural to us. What's important to remember is this, especially in our Western culture that celebrates the individual and glorifies our single heroes, we've lost the understanding that we're all connected. Vanessa Roanhorse of the Navajo Nation gave us an alternative of what this interconnectedness could look like. In that worldview, we acknowledge there's a plurality of beliefs and that your lived experience can be absolutely different from mine. And yet in that difference, we can coexist because that is part of a broader ecosystem of acknowledging that we're all going to be coming from a different place. And your truth is your truth. And my truth is my truth. And it, those those seemingly contradictory ways of thinking under the Western worldview can't exist. But within an indigenous worldview, we don't only acknowledge it can exist, we want it to exist. So somewhere along the timeline of the last few centuries, we invented this truth that we can predict the future, that we are most effective in hierarchies and that everything can be planned and controlled for. Here's how Jeff Bennett explains this development in episode four. For centuries, we've been a society of top-down control and in the early 20th century, for example, factories and business were, were viewed as parts that could be optimized. And, and Frederick Taylor, he revolutionized the factory process and the business processes in the early 20th century by taking a reductionist approach and looking at things as machines with individual parts and optimizing them. And those same principles of scientific management took hold in our society and business and work culture. And actually, that's been around for centuries, going back to Newton and the people of, of the scientific revolution. They took a reductionist paradigm. So over centuries, it's become deeply entrenched and ingrained in our Western culture. Um, and so it's really hard to get out of that. And there's, there's actually a great talk uh, at the, one of the first, actually the first uh, Kaufman Eship Summit in 2017 by David McGonville, where he, if anybody's interested in, in diving into that, about how the the evolution of these paradigms has shifted from this top-down approach to more of a systems network thinking kind of an approach. 
but I think we're beginning to see people realize that we're, we're in a much more connected networked world. So I think we're starting to see a shift from that old paradigm to a new, more systemic systems thinking paradigm. In other words, centuries ago, this command and control way of linear thinking worked reasonably well in factories where people were viewed as inputs and as replaceable. And the more I thought about it, the more this trend toward linear short-term thinking made sense. It's safe to say that over the last few decades, the chaos, uncertainty, and ambiguity around us have increased dramatically. Not only that, but thanks to a 24-7 news cycle, we are so much more aware of what's going on. It's easy to feel overwhelmed and powerless. So to counteract these feelings of overwhelm, we started to break these big, scary issues into smaller, manageable pieces that we could wrap our heads around. So far, so good. No harm done. The issue, however, becomes that if we break down big, complex issues into smaller chunks, we lose their interrelatedness. It prevents us from seeing how one issue is connected to another, which also prevents us from seeing solutions that don't just cure the symptoms at the surface, but actually address the underlying causes that are deeply rooted in the system. So while our desire to simplify is perfectly understandable, it's not helpful in solving complex problems. So while factories are mostly gone, this linear way of tackling problems has remained. Jeff went on to explain the following. Short-term solutions usually tend to focus on one aspect of a much bigger, much more complex system. And, they, and those little you know, quick fixes tend to come at the expense of longer-term and broader issues and, and often undermine longer-term effectiveness. In episode three, Lauren Higgins made a similar argument. She explained that the problem with linear thinking is that it makes us reactive instead of proactive. According to Lauren, short-term linear thinking makes us focus on urgency rather than understanding and realizing that certain decisions require patience and more information. It keeps us from recognizing that the implications of our actions might go beyond just ourselves. We need a more relational view to recognize interdependencies. How, then, should we behave and show up in the ecosystems in which we live, work, and play? Here are six lessons from Season 2. Lesson number one. Let go of the illusion of control. We have less control over things than we think, and once we come to terms with this, you might just see that that is a good thing. You are not responsible for saving the world or even your community. Social change is not about you. Let's all recognize that we are small players in the system. Yes, we have an effect on the system, sometimes unintended and sometimes intentional. Sometimes it's a good effect and sometimes it's negative. And more often than not, it's hard to tell up front, so we have to tread carefully. Instead, I suggest we all accept and find some consolation in the fact that our impact is limited. Let us choose wisely where we want to intervene in the system. Here's what Madeleine Martinier had to say about this interconnectivity and our influence in systems in episode two. It's grounded in a desire as a species. Like we're trying to understand more than we probably can and should. Uh, but we're in that drive, we lose that connectivity and that relational aspects. And the challenge when you're dealing with wicked problems, right, which are in these complex, multifaceted, societal and cultural and planet-sized problems is you can't distill them down to their base parts. 
because they're, they're, everything is connected. So if you make a change in one part of the system, it is inevitably going to have follow-on effects. And if we're not thinking in that relational way, then we end up potentially causing more harm than we intend at the very worst. And at the best, not actually solving the problem. We may be solving the, the symptom, but we're not actually solving the problem. In her book Flux, April says, and I quote, Letting go of the illusion that any one person can control the future frees every person to focus on what they can control, how they respond to change. Lesson two, rediscover connectivity and relationships. Lauren Higgins described that she learned to think in systems through the metaphor of a tree. Rather than sitting on your branch, gazing at your own navel, Lauren developed a way of thinking in systems that is more akin to climbing a tree, moving from one branch to the next, considering related topics and questions that allow us to explore a system in depth and more comprehensively. Hey, I hope you're enjoying the show. If you want to learn more about ecosystem building, hop over to socialventurers.com, where I've been sharing my insights into the field for the last two years. Every two weeks, I lovingly curate the best insights, highlights from the show, resources, and events. If you want those delivered straight to your inbox every two weeks, along with a healthy reminder that your work matters, sign up for Impact Curator. And now, back to the show. In my conversation with April in episode five, we talked about the superpower of seeing what's invisible. Much like accepting the fact that we have no control, let us also accept that most of us are blind to a lot of what's going on in the world. Not necessarily we're ignorant, though there is something to that as well, but because we have been taught not to see systemic challenges as long as they don't affect us. Systemic racism and discrimination against minorities, the effects of global warming and pollution, the loss of biodiversity, the list is long, folks. In a Western culture that celebrates individuality over mutualism, we've become navel gazers. In a world that is increasingly complex and whose challenges are on the news around the clock, we have become very selective over what we engage with and what we try not to see, because let's be honest, it's a lot. But of course, that's no excuse for ecosystem builders. We need to rediscover how we're connected to each other. Here's how April reasoned with us in episode five. The key is that when change hits, if we're not seeing the full picture, then we, we do have blind spots. We're not seeing the full range of what's possible. So when change hits these blind spots and this sort of narrow focus, it actually can wreak havoc. Because not only can it disorient us and confuse us, but it often keeps us from seeing the full suite of solutions, ideas, concepts, possibilities to make our way forward. So for me, this is all about how we navigate change and seeing what's invisible. When change hits, we have to be able to learn how to see what's invisible because that's often where the insights for how we move forward are to be found. Lesson three, listen deeply and with curiosity. So how then do we go about seeing what's invisible? That sounds a little counterintuitive, doesn't it? In episode three, Lauren shares some very practical advice with us from systems thinking pioneer Margaret Wheatley. Listen to these three steps of how to rediscover connections and relationships. Specifically, Margaret Wheatley has, I think, given us the biggest gem here. Because what she says is this, 
humans are great at this. There's a way that humans can be in line with changing systems and doing emergence that's natural for us. She really just kind of points out three things. The first step is to build networks. If we want to be in line with emergence, we understand that networks are the kind of first step in that happening, making those relationships. And then naturally, she says, when networks form and people start learning from one another, then we kind of form these communities of practice, she says. Like people in the network start talking, they start sharing ideas, kind of comparing notes about what should happen. Then finally, and you can't predict this, and it's never been predictable, somehow after all of those interactions, it can create a system of influence or something will emerge. We know it will, right? You put enough ideas, enough people in conversation with one another, learning from one another, some change will emerge. If we're really aligning ourselves with this natural rhythm of getting into networks, working as a community of practice and learning from one another, and then just allowing new ideas and new possibilities to emerge, that's what our job as systems change agents really is, is to nurture those conditions for that pattern to happen. In fact, I leveraged this insight in preparation of season three. On April 14, I hosted a community conversation around the emotional, physical, and mental toll of systems change. Over several weeks in the beginning of the year, I had invited my network of practitioners to join this conversation. By dialing in and sharing their experiences and insights, we formed a community of practice. Mind you, we were not discussing solutions. We gathered in a shared, safe space and talked about what we're struggling with and what needs to happen for us to stay in this game of ecosystem building. And the first sign of a system of influence started to emerge. Hopefully, you will witness the fruit of this process in Season 3. Another element that I want to highlight when it comes to listening with curiosity is Madeline's point about participatory design. Let me remind you. This, at times, colonial thinking, it's very extractive in a lot of ways, where we're going into the design, participatory design methodology, you go into a community, you do your deep listening, but you're going in with a hypothesis, right? So that's your first problem. You're going into a community to be like, I, I think I know the problem that needs to be solved. So I'm going to go in and I'm immediately looking to this community to validate or invalidate my hypothesis, which is binary. It leaves no room for actually maybe, maybe it was the wrong question yeah. in the first place. Um, and that was one of the Peter Block principles, right? Like we have to work, make sure that we're getting, getting the questions right. And so that's the first problem. So we go in with assumptions about what, what, the, what the problem is. We're validating, we're invalidating those assumptions. And then we go back to our offices, to our teams. We take that, we digest it, and then we come up with a solution. Here's the solution that is going to solve the problem that may or may not be the problem. And we lose a lot of times the feedback loops between that. Again, because there is this very narrow scope, there actually isn't the opportunity for the community to go, that actually wasn't the problem yeah. in the first place. Right. And then we lose, I think, in that, we also lose the, the in that relational aspect between people and place and community and nature in that because we're so focused on how do we change behavior mm -hmm. to solve that issue and not understanding the context in which this is all happening. I think in a perfect world, we need to find better ways to do 
participatory design with communities, not for communities, that balances both the needs, the needs and the experience of, of those that are most impacted by the problems that we're trying to solve and the experts that, that may be bringing in outside experience that is valuable, but it does not mean that they are more special <laughs> or that that is necessarily that is weighted differently than the folks who are expected to do the implementation or are going to be most, most impacted and affected by what we're creating. If you want to learn more about participatory design, check out Amelaria's event series on design principles and Madeline's book recommendation from episode two. I will make sure I put all those links in the show notes for you. Lesson four, slow is better. I know, I know you want to cancel this episode right here because slowing down is the last thing we can afford when the world is on fire. I used to feel this way for the longest time. And yet, every guest on this season highlighted in some way or other that we need to slow the F down. Madeline reminded us that this is the work of a lifetime. Jeff and I learned from our experience that we expected too much too fast, and that led us to burning the candle on both ends. Shifting systems and making a difference in the world is not a sprint, friends. I say it louder for the folks in the back. It takes time. Culture change, building trust and relationships, changing mental models, all that takes a lot of time. Personally, I loved what Madeline said about slowing everyone down to co-create meaningful solutions with the communities she serves. Listen to this. Particularly when technology is involved, we're used to quick fixes. And so just because we can do it fast doesn't mean we should. Particularly when it comes to building off of technology, we have to do a lot of realignment of expectations, saying actually slower is better here so that we can build in the appropriate feedback loops. So we're going to do some, we're going to do some iterations and cycles. We're going to do it with you and with your team to help you understand what it is we're doing. And we're going to support you in bringing it out to the community and giving feedback, getting feedback for them. Then we're going to have a conversation about it and we're going to see how, how on, on the ball or not we were. <laughs> And then, and then we design it and then we get to feedback. And then all of this happens before anyone writes a line of code. And it's definitely hard for folks to go, but, but I really want to do it. And I really want to do it now, including for, for technical folks that we work with. Like we work with some spectacular engineers and that's really hard for them too, because they're like, well, we can just build it. We can build it over a weekend. And I'm like, I know you can, <laughs> I have no doubt in your ability to build it and build it well. But if you build something well and it doesn't actually solve the problem, doesn't matter. With this in mind, the only way to make a difference is to slow down. And slowing down is not just the right approach to ensure that you're asking the right questions, listening with curiosity, and co-developing experiments to test solutions. It also keeps you freaking sane. April actually starts her book Flux, Eight Superpowers for Thriving in a World of Constant Change, with the first chapter that makes a case for running slower. Not running slow, but slower. And she has a good reason for that. April argues that in a world of flux that we find ourselves in, the finish line keeps shifting. Have you ever found yourself in the following situation? You set a goal for yourself, personally or professionally, doesn't matter. And you work towards it diligently. Day in and day out, you're tracking progress and you're really getting after it with everything you have. 
It might be harder than you thought, and obstacles and distractions lurk around every corner. You make sacrifices. You put in the hours. You take a little less care of yourself, because this is only temporary. And once you achieve your goal, you'll go back to a slower pace. And then, when you finally achieve your goal, it doesn't actually feel that monumental. Because over the course of chasing your goal, you've already set your eye on the next goal that comes after this one. In other words, by chasing at full speed, not only are we not enjoying the journey or the process, but we let the finish line move, folks. And it probably should. After all, in complex adaptive systems, we try to detach ourselves from the outcome to some degree, because if we're truly invested in participatory design, we can't possibly know what the outcome is. So why do we keep chasing that ghost and exhaust ourselves in the process? Let's be honest. We know full well that once we achieve whatever mountaintop we've set our sight on, there'll be ever more mountaintops to climb. Am I right? Run slower. It allows you to remain present, connect deeply with your own emotions and your community. As April says, there are many kinds of growth that can only come with rest. And that leads to lesson number five. Don't sacrifice yourself. Write this down. Put it on your mirror, above your bed, whatever it takes to remind yourself daily. Jeff Bennett talked openly about the toll that systems change has taken on his health. And Jeff is far from alone. At each Startup Champions Network Summit, we make it a priority to set aside one night of the event to talk about the roses and thorns of our work. We used to call those whiskey and war stories. And for good reason. There are few safe spaces for us to talk about the hardships of this work. In my conversation with Lauren, I shared how I used to feel responsible for solving the world single-handedly, which, now that I say it out loud, sounds ridiculous, of course. But let's not forget that many of us dedicate ourselves to making a difference in the world because we find the status quo unbearable. And when the problems we're trying to solve are nested within complex adaptive systems, they can easily feel overwhelming. And no matter how hard and fast we try to run up that mountain, we're probably not going to solve them in our lifetime. But let's be honest, that doesn't stop us from trying, does it now? This is one of the lessons I personally found most helpful in this season. The reminder that we're not able to serve our communities long term if we burn ourselves out. Lauren Higgins put this really well. Change is happening no matter what. And if you're a shriveled up, dried up husk of yourself and you have no vitality to offer, what are we doing? If we're zapping ourselves, I think martyr is a really appropriate word. I deeply believe in being of service. And I know that that's why I'm here. It's core to me. But from my vitality, that's what I can offer. And then having a realistic understanding of what that would be, you know, I feel like we're getting so many mixed signals about the scale of how we can affect change. And then we kind of put rock star people on pedestals who had these kind of powerful moments where they were able to gain a lot of influence. And then we all think that change looks like that, but change is happening through our relationships, the quality of them, the quality of our conversations every day. That's how humans do it. To make this even more practical, I loved what both Lana and Vanessa shared in their conversations about how they're trying to protect themselves from burning the candle on both ends. In episode 6, 
Lana talked about how she learned to check in with herself regularly to really listen to what her soul and mind needed when she facilitated these really difficult conversations. And here's how Vanessa approaches the overwhelming nature of our work. The comfort for me is nobody should expect I'm going to solve any of these problems, Mm -hmm. but everyone should expect that I will be here for the work. And I think that's comforting. I have moments, usually when I look at my eight-year-old son, but then I look at him and I say, thank God, because we're in in good hands when he grows up. Many of my guests in this season spoke about their self-care practices. Whether you start meditating or finding other ways to run slower and truly listen to what you already know, there is something to be said for taking care of yourself so that you can continue to show up for your community. I don't want to take too much away from April's book, because I could never say it as well as April did. But I want to leave you with three pieces of advice that April shares in her closing chapter of her book. Number one, shift your mindset from predict to prepare. We have established that thinking that we can foresee the future and plan accordingly is a fool's errand. Instead, accept that different futures are possible at any given point. So rather than trying to predict what might happen, Let's put ourselves in a situation of being prepared for whatever comes. Not from a place of fear, but by knowing what's important to us, what we need to thrive, what we care about, and what we're here to do without sacrificing ourselves. Number two, switch from assuming that things will according to plan to assuming that plans will change. I can't tell you, ever since reading this, how often I got frustrated when things didn't go the way I planned. Buying a house, moving, travel, getting sick, you name it. The alternative result of this change was actually generally better and more beneficial than what I had originally planned. But I felt so powerless and it made me angry and frustrated. Once I let go of the illusion of control, I find it a little bit easier to take change as it comes. Now, I assume nothing is going to work out the way I planned. But to be honest, it takes a little pressure of obsessing over things going according to plan, which, as a perfectionist, I find very hard. This one is still work in progress, but each time a plan changes, I now see it as an opportunity to flex my flux muscles. Insight number three from her book, shift your focus from known to unknown. When we try to anticipate the future and plan accordingly, we make all these assumptions based on what happened in the past. Think about it, guys. If we want a future that is different from the past, then we must become more comfortable with the idea that what lies ahead is also different from what lies behind us. In other words, the future is unknown. And since we can't control it and we can't predict it, Maybe we're better off adopting some of that childlike curiosity and magic of the unknown mysteries that life has in store for us going forward. And I have a feeling that we can only do that by slowing down, letting go of the illusion of control, and taking agency over what we can control. Our own responses to a world that is constantly changing. Speaking of agency, here's my last lesson. Lesson number six a new model for leadership. I want to point out what we can learn from all this about leadership. It showed up in many conversations in this season, and I want to highlight these ideas because they're powerful in helping us understand how we can show up as conveners and guides in complex adaptive systems. 
In Community, the Structure for Belonging, Peter Block makes the argument that we might just be the leaders we've been waiting for. Let that sink in. Rather than waiting for elected officials to address issues in our communities, we are all very well equipped to step into that power and start creating the change we want to see. Subconsciously, I think that's why we do what we do to start with. We don't actually need anyone's permission to deploy all the skills and lessons we learned in this season. We can just do it because we have the power to transform our communities by activating our citizenship. Most of my conversation with Sassy, in case you hadn't noticed, was about leadership even though we didn't use the term once. Cooperatives are an excellent model for what democratic and mutualistic systems change can look like. Hear it from Sassy. If you're really interested in kind of taking a look under the hood, uh, in California at least, there is a a wonderful organization called the California Center for Cooperative Development. They bring together a conference every year of deliberately multi-stakeholder co-ops. So they're like housing co-ops, worker co-ops, multi-stakeholder co-ops, ag co-ops, like bring them all in. The thing we have in common is we do our thing cooperatively. Let's talk about the shared challenges there and the shared opportunities. So I would say just start dipping your toe into this world. And hopefully two things will come of that for you. One, it will be revealed to you just how deep and broad the cooperative landscape is around you, even if it is not named thusly. You'll notice that, like, for example, every credit union is a co-op. That's a thing. Everyone. So you might even be a member of a co-op already. You don't know it. So go look at their bylaws. Go look at what they do. What does it mean that you're a member of that? Well, how does that actually look to you? In The Dawn of Systems Leadership, Peter Senge and his co-authors explain. The deep changes necessary to accelerate progress against society's most intractable problems require a unique type of leader, the system leader, a person who catalyzes collective leadership. The challenges we face today can't be met through the hierarchical leadership models of the past or the leadership styles that are effective in single organizations. Because these styles slow the capacity of an ecosystem to adapt and react quickly. Leading in complex environments requires a shift in mindset. Manage, not solve. Nudge, not force. Guide, not direct. Influence, not command. Effective systems leaders need to use both and thinking rather than either or thinking. It requires us to give up control or the illusion of control and accept a solution that is unexpected or even previously unimaginable. And that's it for season two, friends. I hope you've learned a thing or two about operating more effectively in complex adaptive systems, aka the world and the ecosystems that we strive to build and nurture. I want to thank all seven guests who shared openly how they view their work, how they adapt to change, and how they don't lose faith in our effort of driving change by taking a systems approach. We're taking a little break to prepare for season three, in which we'll explore, in a community of practice, how we can take better care of ourselves and each other. Season three is scheduled to go live in mid-June, and until then, expect my next logbook, and I may just have a little surprise for you all. Until then, friends, remember that what you do matters. I pay respect to the traditional custodians of the land on which I work and live the Tuscarora, Shokori, Saponi, Okanichi, Lumbi, and Ino people. I recognize their continuing connection to land, water, and community. I pay respect to elders past, present, and emerging. This episode was produced by Yellow House Media.